Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Our sermon text this morning is our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 57. But before we turn over to Psalm 57, let's look first at John chapter 11. I'm going to be reading verses 33 through 53, just this sort of center portion of the longer story. John chapter 11, verses 33 through 53, and then we'll turn over to Psalm 57. John chapter 11. Verses 33 through 53. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary And had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for that nation, but, for also, but also for those that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Amen. Jesus is twice referred to here as groaning in his spirit. 
Now, when we think of groaning, we often think of the discomfort, this physical pain. And so we groan. That is, we express our sorrow, our sadness, our discomfort with what is going on. But that is not the Greek that is going on in this text. Rather, the groaning here is an expression of anger. Jesus is upset. Jesus is angry with the state of death. He sees it as an enemy to be defeated, a foe to be fought and thrown down. And so Jesus readies himself for the fight. He weeps. He laments. He mourns. He expresses this great frustration at the state of the world and the death that is in it by pouring out his heart. When he has then gathered himself together, he declares with a loud voice that death is done. And says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. Behind or beneath all of these incredible truths is the exchange that happens behind the scenes. John tells us that when news of this extraordinary verbal resurrection gets back to Caiaphas the high priest... He makes an extraordinary conclusion for all the wrong reasons. Caiaphas realizes in that moment, Jesus must die. Which is the right conclusion, but for the wrong reason. Caiaphas concludes this in order to save the nation and the world from the Romans. What he has missed is that it is to save the nation and the world from death. Jesus must indeed die, that we who are doomed to die might die no more. With that in mind, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 57. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 57. It is our Psalm of the Month for the month of May. Psalm 57. It continues through David's series of reflections on Paul, uh, Paul, not him, Saul's persecutions, in which David here is reflecting on the time in which Saul had persecuted him into the wilderness. Psalm 57. Here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, set to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and whose tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. 
Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and heart. I will awaken the dawn. I will sing praise to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens. And your truth unto the clouds. O be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Amen and amen. According to the subtitle, Psalm 57 is from when David was hiding in a cave. But also in the subtitle, it says that it belongs to the chief musician. That is that David's reflection on his experience in the cave belongs to the whole church, to the choir, that we should sing it in praise to God. It's not just David's experience. Oddly enough, I don't know about you, I don't have too many cave experiences. I'm not terribly familiar with spelunking. I know it's a cool word that fancy people can use. But I do not know a lot about caves. When I was growing up, caves were little dens that animals lived in. As a boy who would go hiking in the forested mountains of the Adirondacks and the Catskills, we would pass under the trees along the trails and there would see these giant jaws of granite jutting out from the hillside. And down underneath this great rock would be little burrows dug underneath where the foxes or badgers or bears would live. We would love to go and explore them, but they were just little dens in the ground. That's not what David means here when he speaks of cave. In like manner, a few hours north of where I grew up was a place called Howe's Caverns. These were not like little animal dens. These were underground, subterranean passageways that humans could go through with electricity running through them. You could drive trucks into them. These enormous underground caves. This also is not what David means. You see, in David's culture, to hide in a cave is not to go visit some tourist trap. Nor is it to visit some den of wild animals. No, for David, a cave is a tomb. It is a place in which to bury your dead. You see, in David's world, a cave is a grave. In Genesis 25, when Abraham wants to bury his wife Sarah, he buys the cave at the end of the field of, of Machpelah, which is east of Mamre. When Mary and Martha in John chapter 11 wanted to bury Lazarus, they put him in a cave and rolled a stone over it. And when Jesus himself was taken down from the cross on that fateful Friday night by Joseph of Arimathea, he was laid in a freshly hewn cave. You see, when David hides from King Saul in a cave, he is hiding among the dead, and he is counting himself dead. But in so doing, David discovers a truth, a bit of good news that we desperately need today. 
It's that God's love goes everywhere. This is the truth of Psalm 57. This is good news for our soul today. God's love goes everywhere. Even into the grave. And so my friends, let us worship him everywhere. Because God's love goes everywhere, let us worship him everywhere. Let's look at this a little bit together. Please look at the psalm with me. And notice that in verse 1, David begins with prayer, as he often does in psalms. He says, be merciful to me, O God. And then he repeats it a second time. Be merciful to me, O God. This is an emphatic request. David is desperate. What is more, at the beginning of verse 2, he says, I will cry out to God most high. This is not a quiet whisper. This is not a prayer that is essentially a thought inside his head. No, rather, David is vocal and voluminous. David is crying aloud and saying desperately and intensely twice, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful. But this prayer further is an expression of his faith in God. In the second line of verse 1, he says, For my soul trusts in you. The reason David asks God for mercy is because he believes God has mercy. He believes that God gives mercy. Faith is expressed in prayer. You've heard me say that many, many times. It comes up almost every month when we look at a psalm. If we trust God, we pray. If we trust in God's mercy, we pray. This is what faith in God looks like. It is a praying person. But then David supplies us, in order to captivate our metaphor, in order to move our hearts, David supplies us with this metaphor. Verse 1, in the shadow of your wings, I will, take, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. David imagines himself as a frightened baby bird. Seeking the wings of his mother hen. You see, this was a good psalm to say for Mother's Day, wasn't it? David's leading metaphor is that one that I witnessed in a barnyard. You see, here on Antrim Street, we are blessed with wonderful, beautiful birds. We have cardinals and blue jays and sparrows and pigeons and doves. And we have other birds that I'm not remembering right now. And they are all beautiful And they all sound beautiful. The one bird I have never seen on Antrim Street is the one that I saw most often on my farm growing up. The chicken. And every time large drops of rain began to go plop, plop, plop on the ground, the mother chicken would fluff herself up as big as she can go, spread out her wings as far as they can reach, and go clucking around the yard gathering as many little chicks as she could find. And when all the space was full and all the chicks were safe beneath her, she would squat down on top of them and shield them from the rain. This is what David imagines is happening to him when he prays. When he bows his head and heart and cries out, God, be merciful to me, 
God stretches out his arms and hugs him. Is this what you imagine at 6 p.m. on Sunday night when you go to the prayer meeting? Is this what you imagine at Wednesday night when you gather together for midweek group? When you each evening gather your children for family worship, when you each morning open your word and begin to read and to pray, when you turn to your Father in heaven, do you see him with arms outstretched saying, you're safe, come, you are safe. He, like a mother hen, gathers all his children to himself in prayer. This is the position we must adopt in order to enjoy the shadow of his wing. He stretches out and says, come. Of course, in this metaphor, we also have a beautiful picture of Jesus who would adopt this exact language. When he stood on the Mount of Olives and faced the Temple Mount, and with tears running down his street, tears running down his cheeks, said to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who murdered the prophets, I have longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. They would not pray. They would not cry out for mercy. They would not say to God, come and save and deliver. My friends, let us be as David. Diligent in prayer. Delighting in prayer. Knowing that it is how we tuck ourselves under the wing of Christ. The wing that is Christ. In which we find shelter. Our Jesus. This is how we worship him everywhere. By praying to him everywhere. But for what should we pray? David gives us the content of our prayer in verses 2 and 3. Having modeled for us that in all calamities, in all problems, our first and primary position must be one of prayer, hiding ourselves in the shadow of God's wing, that is Christ. David now tells us what to pray for. He says, first of all, that he prays to the God who performs all things for me. He prays to the God who gives him everything that is good and does everything that needs to be done. If there is something to be fixed, it is God who fixes it. If there is something to be restored, it is God who restores it. He is the one who performs all things. The first thing David does in his prayer is disavow his ability to solve the problem. The first thing David does in his prayer is acknowledge his inability to fix it. It is God who performs all things for me. Secondly, David asks him to send salvation. Send from heaven and save me. Of course, this word save me is the Hebrew Yeshua, pointing us to the name of Jesus Christ. He shall send from heaven Jesus This is who we should pray for primarily. Send from heaven your salvation. This salvation is made more specific in the end of verse 3. He shall send forth his mercy and his truth. David prays for mercy and truth to be sent from heaven to him. Now we can understand these as two independent concepts. Mercy and truth that relate to each other obviously. Or, in Hebrew, we could understand them as modifying one another. 
and uniting. That is to say, we could translate this, God will send his true mercy. Or, God will send his merciful truth. Either way, we end up with Jesus. God will send his love into the world. That was Christ. The love of God come to us was in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is more, the truth of God is Christ. The word of God is Christ. David prays, positioning himself under the wing of God, which is Christ. But further, David prays specifically for Jesus to come to him. And notice what he expects Jesus to do upon his arrival. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. In between these two parallels, he will send from heaven salvation. He will send forth truth and mercy. In the middle, David says that what true mercy, what salvation will do when it arrives, or he arrives, is he will reproach those who would swallow me. This visual of swallow goes back to the frightened baby bird. That what David as a little bird is scared of and why he's seeking the shelter of his mother hen is because there's a predator who wants to eat him. There's an enemy who would devour him. What is more, it points us back to the metaphor of the cave. That David is fearing being swallowed up by death itself. He fears the grave. But in this way, David understands that the salvation of God, the truth and mercy of God, have come into the world in Jesus Christ to reproach death. To rebuke the grave. To put an end to sin and Satan and death. That though our enemy would arise and Satan would seek to oppress us, he cannot win. For true mercy has come. For salvation has come. And though our sins would ensnare us and enslave us, we walk at liberty. Because true mercy has come. Because death has been turned back by Christ. For what do we pray? We pray for Jesus to come. This is an extraordinarily important application. Because at least in our present experience, most of us have been trained in the prayer practice of asking for everything horizontal. Let's have good health. Yes, let's. Let's have good money. Yes, let's. Let's have a blessed life. Let's have peace in our hearts. We have very inward-focused requests. And David, though longing to be delivered from death, is here ultimately praying that Christ instead would come to me. This is what Psalm 57 would teach us to pray. That we would go first to prayer, but further, when we go to prayer, we would pray primarily and preeminently that we would know Christ. That we would know Him as our resurrection and our life. That we would know Him as the one who had come from heaven and the one who had come to us. That we would know our Jesus. This is how we worship Him everywhere. That in all circumstances, we long primarily not for success, but for Jesus to be known and glorified. And we pray that way. We pray, O oh Lord, in this circumstance, whatever you work out for me, just work out the coming of Christ. Just work out 
the presence of Jesus in me and through me. Then thirdly, David at last gets to the heart of the problem. Having first positioned himself beneath the wing of God in prayer, that is Jesus, having secondly petitioned God for his coming into the world, that is Jesus, he now sees the desperate need for Jesus. Verse 4, my soul is among lions, I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, my teeth are, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and whose tongue is a sharp sword. David says, I am in a deadly situation. I am like that baby bird surrounded by a hungry predator, and that predator is lions, plural. Do you know how birds get away from lions? They fly. They don't fight. They fly. David says, I am a weak and wounded little bird, perhaps with broken wing, perhaps too young to fly. Whatever the weakness and feebleness he possesses, David is surrounded by hungry lions and feels hopeless and helpless. He is surrounded by fiery men, the metaphor of lions for humans. Humans whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongue is a sharp sword. This is a dangerous and deadly position to be in. And yet, as I was meditating on this verse this past week, I found it weird. Does anyone else notice the oddity in this? We're talking about David here. You know, the lion killer. What's the problem? You see, you remember from David's early years, when he was a teenager working in the fields with his dad's sheep, lions used to come in to the flock to eat the sheep. And you remember what David told Saul he did? He would grab the sheep by the, not the sheep, he would grab the lion by the beard and he would punch it in the face until it ran away or died. That's rough translation of the Hebrew. He would beat the lion to death with his bare hands. That's David. And here he is saying, I am terrified, there's lions everywhere. And it's like, you, the guy who kills lions with your bare hands, are terrified of lions. Secondly, men on fire who are armed with swords, arrows, and spears. You guys remember the Goliath story, right? The giant, ten feet high, shows up with spear, arrows, and sword, and David kills him with a stick and a stone. This is it. Here is David, and he's terrified of these men. Why is David suddenly so afraid of those enemies which he has so thoroughly whipped in times past? Well, my friends, it is because these lions and these humans are not Philistines. They are Israelites. It is King Saul, the anointed, David's king. David can't kill them. David can't fight back. He's afraid of these lions because he's not allowed to fight them. He's afraid of these humans because he's not allowed to contend with them. All he can do is run away and hide. This is why he's so terrified. Because obedience to God requires not fighting back. Once again, we see our Jesus, do we not? 
We must pray that Jesus would cover us like a mother hen. And in prayer, tuck ourselves beneath him. We must pray that God sends into this world true love. Jesus. Because true love is the one that willingly and obediently did not fight the lions or the humans with fire, spear, arrow, or sword, but willingly gave his life into their hands and into their jaws. David is worried about his ability to defend himself and so becomes a type and shadow of Christ in which Jesus was defenseless in the mouths of lions. You can see parallels to this in Psalm 22, in which Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Further down in the psalm, he says, They are like lions around me, roaring for my flesh. Jesus, having given himself willingly, obediently into death, willingly embraces the grave, for our sakes and for our sin, that we might be saved. My friends, this is why we worship him everywhere. For this is his salvation. He is a worthy savior to be exalted. And so David turns in verses 5 and 6 and begins to pray for the exaltation of God. This worthy savior, this one who has heard him like a mother hen, this one who has come into the world in true love, This one who has willingly laid down his life and been devoured by lions and violent men for us. In this way, he begins to pray, Be exalted, O God. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. David longs for the glory of God and the exaltation of God to rise up to the highest heavens. He'll repeat this refrain, this chorus in verse 11. So I'll explain it more in detail there. For now, notice at verse 6. They prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit for me into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. David witnesses this tremendous reversal. That having sent true love into the world, and having sent true love, that is Jesus, into the jaws of the lion that he might die for us, David suddenly sees an unexpected turn of events. The net that would have tripped him up and caused him to fall headlong into the pit, the pit that had been dug to be his grave, his enemies now occupy. John will pick up on this vision in Revelation. Satan, who would ensnare us and drag us down into the fires of hell, in Revelation 20, is instead cast into the fire himself. What a tremendous reversal. Likewise, our sins, which would heap up upon us like a mountain and crush us, have been bound up in a bag and tossed into the heart of the sea, according to the book of Job. According to the psalmist, they are removed from us as far as east from west is distant. He has put away our sin. And beloved, according to John chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians 15, that pit which our sins have dug, that pit which Satan himself has dug, that grave that goes into everlasting damnation is filled and occupied, but not by you. 
For Jesus has come. For true love has come into the world and has willingly dared the fangs of the lion, has willingly suffered the spear and sword and arrow of this world. See what David sees in verse 6? That because Christ has willingly come into the world and lay in the grave, we go free. We pass over death, or rather death passes over us. That just as the angel of death came through Egypt in the days of our fathers, and our fathers went free under the blood of the Lamb, so much more, my friends, we pass into and through the grave under the blood of the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of this world. This is the extraordinary salvation which David witnesses from inside his cave. Though he is laid there among the dead bodies, though he has seen there the cadavers and the carcasses and corpses, David knows there is life after death, that the pit itself will not hold him forever. And so David determines to spend his life reflecting this resurrection reality. This, my friends, is the lesson for us. That we should know and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the mercy and truth of God that has come into this world. That Jesus Christ is the one who has stretched out his arms and said, come to me and I will give you life, life eternal. Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his life that we might go free. He entered the grave that we might not need to. And so, in exchange, our response must be verses 7 through 11. Which sounds and feels so different, does it not? Even in our Psalter, you notice we're going to sing 57a and 57b. You know why that is? Because it's so disjointed in tone and tune, isn't it? The beginning of the psalm is is so heavy with the weight of death. So fear-filled of the grave. So desperate in crying, God be merciful, God send true love. But not so the second half of the psalm. Notice the change in tune. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. It is parallel with verse 1. That in so much as David promises to pray, be merciful to me, be merciful to me. He now promises to praise. My heart is steadfast, my heart is steadfast. Even as David lives a life of prayer, constantly asking God to send Christ, constantly asking God to send Jesus into our work, into our marriages, into our homes, here too David says, I will be constantly in praise. I will sing and I will give praise. David devotes his life to the keeping of the first shorter catechism. Westminster Catechism. You guys know it? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. David says, because Christ is my life, and that life is eternal, I will spend this life here on earth glorifying and enjoying God. I will sing His praise. And then he sums up his whole existence in three parts. 
to prove the totality of his devotion to worship, he gives three parts. Number one, awake all his pride, all his strength, all his wisdom, all his wealth, all his worth. Awake my glory, all of who I am, all of my energy, my might, and my power, all that I have to offer to the world, I devote it to the glory of God. I give it to the singing of His praise. My heart is fixed and resolved. This is my mission in life. I will live every moment bending all my strength, power, wealth, worth, wisdom to the glorifying and enjoying of God. Secondly, he says, awake, lute and harp. By that, David means his instruments, his tools and his talents. You see, David was not only a skilled musician in the sense that he could play the lute and the harp, David was a skilled musician in the sense that he invented lutes and harps. We see in 2 Chronicles that there were instruments which David himself made. He had a talent for making musical instruments. He had a talent for making musical instruments sing. In fact, in a few minutes, you guys are going to get to enjoy that talent when you sing Psalm 57. He had a beautiful talent for making music. And in like manner, everyone in this room is blessed by God with a peculiar talent. Everyone in this room has unique tools and instruments that God has entrusted to you for the glory of His name. Because Jesus has come into the world, because Jesus has laid down His life, because Jesus has raised you from the dead, this is the theology of verses 1 and 6. And on the basis of that foundation, David says to his church, Come, let us be resolved to use all our glory and strength to worship God. Let us use all our talent, all our instruments, all our abilities to glorify God. His third and last one. I will awaken the dawn. How many of you saw sunrise this morning? How many of you have seen the sunrise this past week? This past month? David does not mean that you have to do your devotions before sunrise. You're off the hook. That is not what he means. When he says, I will awaken the dawn, what he means is, I will be so devoted to the exercise of the worship of God that if I am awake, I will worship him. When I am awake, I will worship him. He is pledging his every waking hour. Now, the one place that you are on the hook is that if you're awake in the middle of the night, you're still obligated to worship. Okay? So when you come to me and say, Pastor, I'm having trouble sleeping at night, do not be alarmed when I tell you, have you tried praying? And you're like, oh, will that help me go to sleep? No, it'll give you something good to do while you're awake. This is David's mindset. That we should worship perpetually. To borrow the three beautiful alliterations from Randy Alcorn. That we should worship God with our treasure, our talent, and our time. These are the three that David is here declaring should belong to God in his glory. 
That with all of our talent, with all of our treasure, and with all of our time, we live a life of worship. Going to work as an act of worship. Living in the home as an act of worship. Being a good neighbor as an act of worship. And of course, worship itself. Where we devote ourselves from day to day and week to week to this full exhortation to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now this, my friends, this is not an individual sport. This is not a work of a single human. But rather, David ends in verses 9 through 11 by acknowledging that not only is he so exercised by the joy of Jesus that he's going to devote his whole life, all his time, all his talent, all his treasure to the worship of Jesus, What is more, he's going to make a worshiping community out of everyone he meets. You see that in verse 9? I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For David, Israel is just too small. We've got to get the other nations too. It is too wonderful a salvation, too glorious a grace that we should keep it to ourselves. This is David's evangelistic purpose. That not only would he live this mission of glorifying and enjoying God, but that he would summon others to come and glorify God with him. To live a life of worship with him. Beloved, let us have an equal resolve. To be devoted to evangelism. To see worship and evangelism as twins. That if we love to worship God, we likewise want others to love to worship God. And that as our passion for worship grows, our passion for evangelism grows with it. In verse 10, David sees the world straight and clear. Your mercy reaches up to the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. This is the climax of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He uses the same two words that he used in verse 3. He asked for God to send from heaven... In verse 3, mercy and truth. That is Jesus Christ, the true love of God. Here in verse 10, he acknowledges the ascension. That that true mercy of God, that love of God which is Christ, has reached back up to the heavens and the truth unto the clouds. Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. David in desperation has pleaded for Jesus to come. And Jesus has come. And now he's gone back. Now he has ascended up into glory and sits at the right hand of God. And for this reason, David concludes in verse 11, as he did in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above the earth. You see what David wants? He wants a world already full of the grace of God. To likewise be filled with the glory of God. And he devotes himself to that mission. This is the purpose for which I exist. Having tasted the grace of God, I now devote myself to the glory of God. Having partaken of the grace of God in Christ, I now proclaim to the world the glory of God in Christ. This is what David does. Let me give you a vision of this 
an imaginative capture of this. David begins the psalm as a frightened baby bird, longing for a mother hen under whom to hide. David ends the psalm as a big, bold rooster looking for the highest peak of the tallest barn from which to crow out the grace and glory of God. Do you know why that rooster metaphor is so fitting? Because contrary to all the city slickers who think that roosters only crow at dawn, roosters crow at dawn because they crow every single hour of every single day and night. Roosters crow at dawn because they crow constantly whenever they feel like it. And David is a good rooster. He rises and he crows the glory of God. And he boasts in the grace of God. Every hour of every day, night or day, he arises to shout out the praises of God that all the world would hear. That Jesus, having already filled the world with grace, might now find the world filled with glory. We see then the truth that indeed God's love has gone everywhere. This completes the cave metaphor. You see, God's love goes even into death itself. God's love is so strong that it, that it reaches into death and keeps alive his children, bearing them to heaven like he did Christ. The last thing that I find most encouraging about this is that not only are all these pictures and images and metaphors pointing us to Jesus, but David is himself a type of Christ. Which means that I could have also preached this psalm this way. Jesus has come into the world. He has laid down his life for his church. And he is raising his people from the dead through the preaching of the gospel. And he promises you at the end of this psalm, you will fill this world with his glory, even as he has filled you with his grace. Because Jesus is the choir master to whom this psalm was written. We are the choir. He is the soloist. We are the accompanists. This is the wonderful work of God in Christ. To fill all the world with his love. That the world might all be filled with his glory. Beloved, this is good news for us this morning. It's the best news. God's love goes everywhere. So worship him everywhere. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the brightness of the sun, the beauty of the flowers and trees, the warmth of the air, the joy of a baby's baptism, the psalms of praise in our hearts and on our lips, the prayers of the saints ascending to you as we take refuge under your wing. And we give you thanks for this, your word, read and preached in our midst. O God, write it now upon our hearts. Bind it to our minds, that we might live now what we have heard, that we might be transformed into the likeness of Christ by the love of Christ. 
O God, glorify yourself in this gracious work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.